So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and we are here in the month of September now. We recently reduced the number of podcast episodes to two a month. We were doing weekly. Now that we know that the pandemic is not really going anywhere for quite some time to come, I decided to slow down the frequency of this podcast so that I can focus on my nonprofit as well that's getting started, the Autoimmune Community Institute, where we focus on health equity in autoimmune research, advocacy, and support. So for more information about the work of health equity in autoimmune health, check out acicommunity.org. Today we're talking about current updates with COVID-19, research, where you can go to get clear information when you have questions that have not quite been addressed yet on Google or wherever you've searched. So today we're going to be speaking to Dr. Emily Smith, and she's going to be sharing information with us about COVID101.org. And this is a great resource for the, the community, for the public, to find information and get answers. You can actually post questions in there. And they will give you answers from a range of specialists, primary care, epidemiologists as well, who can answer questions related to what your concerns are from a level of expertise and connection to the science. So I found this very profound that this is a resource that's available to us. And so before we begin, just wanted to talk about today's news article, today's news update about the vaccine race to come up with a vaccine, any vaccine that people can use to protect themselves against COVID-19. 
This is a great point here. The race to the virus vaccine is great, I guess, you know, as long as we go through the proper scientific method to make sure that it is effective and safe, of course. But we already have the answer in terms of controlling the pandemic. We know how to prevent this spread of this virus. We know about social distancing, masks, sanitizing, cleaning, and not being in highly crowded, especially indoor spaces. We know this already. In the meantime, this is what we can do. But today, the news is about transverse myelitis. This is the condition that somebody was diagnosed with during the vaccine tests for AstraZeneca. Their coronavirus vaccine trial reported that one person was diagnosed with this autoimmune condition. Am I surprised? No, I'm not surprised because we're working with the immune system. We're working with... Anyways, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail about that because that's not my field. But we do know that there are various triggers to autoimmune conditions, relapses happening, which is likely what happened here that someone was brought into a relapse trigger as a result of fighting this vaccine that they were injected with. I thought that was really interesting that it was an autoimmune condition, bringing more awareness to the fact that autoimmune conditions are everywhere. We are immunocompromised out there, many of us, and these are the concerns. And so we still have a lot of questions, especially when we are immunocompromised and part of the underlying conditions population. How safe is it going to be to take the vaccine? Questions continue to be part of the conversation. And this brings up that conversation once again. If you have an autoimmune condition, will the vaccine trigger a relapse response? So the website is called covid-101.org. And today we're going to be speaking to Emily Smith. She's an epidemiologist and assistant professor of global health at George Washington University and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno, and today we're talking a bit more of the public health side and the public health aspect of how COVID-19 is impacting our nation and even internationally to some level. So today we are speaking to Dr. Emily Smith. She's an epidemiologist and assistant professor of global health at George Washington University. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And tell us a little bit more about you. Great. So like you said, I'm an epidemiologist by training and I trained on population health and epidemiological methods and infectious disease epidemiology. So that's that was my PhD. And of course, my background in infectious disease actually started working with norovirus and rotavirus. Norovirus, you know, from cruise ships. So this is the vomit, diarrhea, rapid spreads through cruise ships. That's the norovirus. And so that was my first infectious disease work. And then have had the chance to work on HIV AIDS over the years. And, and then, of course, as, as COVID-19 happened, I thought there were a lot of a lot of things I've learned, my research group has learned from working on other infectious diseases over the years. And so since 
of February really have been working on this COVID-19 response. Thank you, and I really appreciate the fact that you have the context and the depth of knowledge related to other infectious diseases as well. So you can probably see some characteristics that are common. The fact that the virus loves to be transported from person to person, those you know, similarities, I guess, across infectious diseases. Yeah, can you tell us how things are going locally or nationally? What are you seeing with regard to the pandemic response and how things are being handled? What lives, mortality, morbidity is looking like? Yeah, so I can say a bit more about the global uh, sense of things since my, my work is in global health and I work closely with the World Health Organization in connecting research to policy. So I pay more attention to what's happening from country to country. And definitely from the U.S. perspective, though, we continue to see the U.S. have one of the worst epidemics globally. And we see this in a lot of different ways, from the number of cases to the number of deaths, and even to the percent of tests that come back positive. So across all of these indicators, certainly we're seeing the U.S. have one of, one of the worst uh, outbreaks, and that, that really continues. And it's really interesting to me as someone who pays attention from country to country, I think that's something we lose track of a bit in the U.S., when I talk to my friends and family, it seems like we're kind of celebrating, oh, we had less than 1,000 deaths a day over last month. So it's kind of coming down, which is true and that is good news, but that number is still dramatically higher than what we're seeing in other countries. And so one of my, I just, I hear this a lot because one of the research jobs I'm doing is to pull together data from different countries so we put it together in one big pool so we can learn more and I'll, you know I'll hear things from my colleagues for example in China and Hong Kong they say oh we're having a bad month we had 17 cases and there were 17 cases in one dorm last week at, on, on any given college campus. And so anyhow, I think that's for me is the big takeaway and it continues to be the case that, that we really are suffering here in the US. I think the other thing that's really notable to me from the last two weeks are schools and universities are reopening. You know, I've heard people say, oh, we had to, particularly at universities, if I, if I may, Universities are young adults, and young adults clearly have the same risk of getting and spreading COVID as anyone else. And so colleges and universities also provide this, this special situation where people are living together and working together, learning together, having fun together. And it, to me, there's, there's no doubt that we will continue to see these outbreaks on, on college campuses across the U.S. where they're open. And, you know, I'm a professor. I love college students, and I, I think they're great. And I'm frustrated to see people kind of blaming college students, saying, oh, they're going to parties. That's dumb, and that's cause. Of course, we know parties, bars, those things are not good right now because close contact, but also things like shouting and singing spread the virus faster. So, of course, those are bad things. But I think we'll continue to see this on college campuses, even without a party, you still will have 
quicker spread on college campuses just due to things like dorms, cafeterias, shared bathrooms, this sort of thing. So for me, that's another one of the big stories of the last two weeks is I think we'll continue to see this. And I think colleges and universities, I hope, can make really responsible decisions and quickly. What has been your circumstance so far with your university? Are you required to be in the classroom? Are you required to meet in person with your students? No, fortunately, George Washington decided about a month ago that we would do everything remotely with a few exceptions. And so for us on our, on our campus, we're, we're fortunate in that sense. So we're getting creative with our online courses and we have some research ongoing in the case where people need to be in labs for animal research and particularly for research related to COVID-19 that's ongoing in the safest way possible and there's really a lot of testing and symptom monitoring for anyone that is on campus to do this research but largely people are are calling in from the comfort of their their home can you tell us about some of the things that are going well if we think more nationally or internationally again globally what are some examples of things that are going well i mean relatively speaking a country that has 17 cases is it's going well in terms of management, but still there's still 17 cases. This disease is still out there uh, compared to the thousand a day here in the United States, you know, just whole looking at comparisons. But what are some examples that you've seen in your view of how people are or countries or regions are managing the virus well? Yeah, there definitely are good examples globally where where people people have done a good job of essentially eliminating community transmission Mm -hmm. so the disease is still there but it's not spreading from person to person in a way that's unknown and it's really this old-fashioned traditional public health practices that have made this successful and that's rapid testing and contact tracing. So those are two very clear strategies that work. And the rapid testing is important because there's been a lot of modeling work now that shows delays between when a person has symptoms and get tested and a delay of more than one day in getting a result back to someone really decreases the utility of this test and trace model because the disease replicates the number of viral copies in your body uh, correlates more or less to how infectious the disease is. And that happens right before you get symptoms and right after you get symptoms, those first few days. So in order for this to be effective, we're really talking about timing, getting fast about getting people into the appointment to get testing and getting that result back. So that's one thing. And then the other, Other thing that has happened in South Korea, Japan is notable for using this strategy is focusing on the three C's. This is is conceptual and of course there are a lot of details to doing it, but really focusing on avoiding crowded spaces, confined or poorly ventilated spaces, close contact, that's the other one. So that's the bar example, Uh, close range conversations, that sort of thing. So close spaces, crowded spaces, and close contact spaces. this kind of cluster-based approach is, is what we've also seen work in places like South Korea and Japan. Um, so two different ways to think about it, but really low-tech and traditional public health efforts have worked and really made life 
more normal in a lot of countries. That would be nice. Can you tell us how we can improve things here in the United States at the current moment? Unfortunately, there's still a lot of denial that this virus can affect people. I've had conversations with people who are okay with getting infected if it were to happen to them. What can we do here to get some sense of control over this virus? Now, maybe I can, two things, one from a personal perspective and then one from a policy perspective. I think from the personal perspective, a lot of the conversations are focused on, on two extremes. Like we have to have save lives or get the economy back. Like we have to be in complete lockdown or we have to reopen everything. Um, or masks for everybody or no masks for anybody. And so I think those things are a little harmful to our conversation to have one extreme or the other, because in reality, we have to do both things. We have to save lives and the, we have to ensure the economy is working for people. Something like masks, actually there are plenty of times you don't need to wear a mask and there are plenty of times you should wear a mask, right? So I think one thing in terms of personal communication is thinking, trying to think less in the extremes. And then the second thing I also think is important is understanding that risk tolerance is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. So some people are risk averse because maybe they have a personal health reason to be risk averse or someone in their family does, or maybe just naturally they're kind of person who takes more risks. And that's okay too. That's a normal part of life. But what does that mean, you know, in the broader sense? How can we all be lower risk? And how can we do things that make make it lower risk for everyone in our community? So for me, that's how I'm trying to frame the conversation to, to help people think about that. And maybe that feels a little a little safer, a little less extreme. You know, even things like summer fun, I keep saying summer fun is not all or nothing. Like you still could have fun, but how can we do this in a safer way? So trying to think of it more in, in public health, we would call that a harm reduction framework for how we help people make choices. So that's one thing. In terms of what else we can do in the U.S., one of the big things for me is getting this testing situation sorted out. Testing and tracing. We, we need this to be faster, better, and we need it to be database. So one of the promising things that, I, that has happened in the last week is that the FDA did issue emergency use authorization for a new antigen test from Abbott. And an antigen test is a rapid test. So you, know, you get results in 15 minutes instead of having to send it away to a lab to go through of long testing process and then wait for the information to get back to a person. And so things like rapid tests can really help, I think, clear out some of these bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. So that will be important to, to update. And then the other thing you've seen is colleges and universities have gotten creative about getting better testing because even George Washington we didn't end up using it, but we did have a system in place to be able to test students, you know, almost every week. And many universities have done this. And so how can we expand this outside of the research or the university setting so that it's actually 
you know, supporting our communities is an important question. And those programs tend to have been a, a little, a little bit more clever in doing things like using saliva samples or pooling samples together to use fewer resources. So I think there needs to be a little bit of rethinking around the testing because we've seen public health labs and governments be slow to take up some of these more innovative approaches in part because they're not to be overly technical, but very attached to the sensitivity and specificity of the gold standard PCR test. And the reason I think that we have to let go of that is because we really care about catching people in the infectious period of the disease where they have a lot of virus in their body and all of these tests work just fine. And so that requires changing a bit of our framework mm -hmm. around what we think is important in a test. I think that's happening a bit slowly, but I hope we can we can change our framework faster to make testing and tracing more feasible right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like your approach. It makes a lot of sense. We have to be, what's the word, agile during this time of unprecedented change, I guess, <laughs> with the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about the website COVID-101? Yes, so COVID-101, covid-101.org. This is a website and COVID-101, we say, is a consortium of scientists trying to answer your questions because we all agree that everyone deserves an answer to their question about the pandemic and deserve an answer that's based on the latest science. So this all started one day early in the pandemic I made an Instagram story with a few, few slides saying, this is real, this is serious, here's what you can do to protect yourself. And it was funny because my friends who were scientists started sending me messages and saying, hey, can you send me the scientific reference that you were talking about? And then my friends and family who are not scientists were like, how can I share this information? People have questions. And so I thought, well, we need something that both speaks to the science of it and something that's simple that people can share with friends and family. And so that's how the idea for COVID-101 was born. And now we have a few dozen scientists and doctors who work together to answer questions that people send in. And we have a lot of different types of people because even it might seem like, oh, it's all the same type of thing about COVID, but really there are so many subspecialties. So for example, early on, we got a lot of questions about cleaning, like what was the best disinfectant to use, what type of hand sanitizer to use, and really you want an environmental health scientist to answer those questions, people who actually study what chemicals kill which type of viruses. And so we're able to get a woman and a former lab mate of mine, actually from Emory University, who studies this very thing. So she takes the questions that people have about disinfectants, for example. And then we have a number of doctors who are able to answer things like this week, someone wanted to know, should they buy a pulse oximeter to use at home? I'm an epidemiologist. I do not know the answer to that question, uh, but our doctors do. And so they look at the latest on that. And then some things people want to know 
are, can we go and do things? So going out and about, is it safe to swim in a lake because it's fresh water? Is that worse than salt water, for example? Is it safe to go hiking or what about an amusement park? How about playing soccer? So all of these things, what our goal is, is to A, look at the evidence. Have there been outbreaks associated with doing this thing, for example? And then also to think through what are ways to reduce your risk if you want to do it and why we think it's risky or not. And so for every person, we'll have their own decision to make, like we talked about. But our goal is to help you help you understand what, what might be risky and how you could reduce that risk. So all kinds of kinds of things that we're talking about. The other thing we're trying to cover is the latest news about drugs and vaccines. So when there's a new clinical trial that comes out, we try to summarize it as simply as possible and put it all in one place. So that is our goal at COVID-101. Great. Yeah, there's so many questions I would love to ask you about. Like, for example, the new vaccines that are supposed to be out in the fall. So many questions I have. But I guess the main question I would have for you for this episode of the podcast is with regard to your specialty in newborn and child health. What have been some of the concerns? What's the conversation around COVID-19 and protection with children, young babies? Yeah, one of the really big questions for newborns in particular was whether or not what would happen if a baby is born to a woman who had COVID-19. And initially, what was happening was that babies were removed right away from their moms to make sure that the baby did not get COVID. And also, people were not sure about breastfeeding the baby. So if mom had COVID, is there a chance that the baby would get COVID from breastfeeding? Because some other infectious diseases, like HIV, AIDS, for example, that actually can be passed from breast milk to the baby. So this was one of the big concerns early on. And people were very cautious in keeping babies separated from mom. And although there's still, we're still doing a lot of research on this, it now, it seems fairly safe. The benefits of mom and baby being together, being able to spend time skin to skin, the benefits of breast milk, you know, there's antibodies and all kinds of good nutrients in breast milk for babies. So all of those things seem to outweigh any risks that there might, there might be. And so I think that's one big change we've seen and the World Health Organization now very clearly recommends that moms and babies stay together and that they continue breastfeeding uh, even if mom is sick with, with COVID. So lots of detailed scientific work still going on there, but the public health message is pretty clear by now. Um, and so that's good news and if newborns, you know, there are, certainly are cases of newborn infection or infant infections, but it, it seems to be less common and, and less severe. And that's one of the big kind of nuanced pieces about pediatric cases of COVID is it seems the risk increases with age. Always we want to be extra cautious for pregnant people and for newborns. We want to give them extra extra precautions. The most recent infectious disease outbreak before COVID, you may remember, was Zika virus. So many of the researchers I work with, you know, were prepared potentially for something like that, which was really severe for newborns and for pregnant moms. And that doesn't seem to be 
the case based on what we know so far. So it's, it's relatively good news. Can you tell us a little bit more about where people can go? What advice you would give to somebody who is looking for trustworthy information? Now we know about covid101.org. So this is a great place for more information based on the science. We have the source, you know, this is specialists in these specific fields, whether it be environmental health, whether it be pediatrics, medicine, public health epidemiology, and so on. But what advice would you give to somebody who's just lost and they're kind of confused with regard to what information is out there? One warning sign I always look for is if anyone's too extreme or too confident about the information they're giving. I think I see that in a lot of the misinformation is it's it's too extreme or too, it's not possible to be so confident. So it's a little counterintuitive, I think, that to look for someone who has nuance and will explain to you the details. So that's one thing I like to look for. The second thing I always do is to look up the source. So who's saying it? Why are they saying it? What are their credentials? And even I get tricked on the, when I'm clicking around on the internet, just to look at the actual website. Does it end in .com or .org? That's a good place to start. And what's the organization? Click on their about page to see who they are. Make sure they're actual people that you can track down, check out their organizations. I think these are a few good tips and I always cross-check, even I work on this 24-7 these days, I always cross-check what the CDC and what the World Health Organization say on the topic. So even if I think I know for sure what's happening, I always cross-check with those two references because that's a good way to ground, ground your truth. So how can we find out more information about you? What are the social media links that you're on? How can we access more information? Absolutely. So the website is covid-101.org and there you can submit a question. So you can email us directly from the website and we'll answer your question on the website. We've answered 170 questions so far and we'll keep doing it as the questions come in. So that's one. And then second, if you're interested in a bit more of the science behind it, I try to tweet the latest updates on clinical trials and studies happening on Twitter. And there you can find me at Dr. Emily R. Smith. Great, Dr. Emily R. Smith on Twitter. Thank yeah. you so much for being available today for this conversation. I really do appreciate it. I think the work that you're doing with covid101.org is so important and it's wonderful work. I think it's translatable to the public. I think it's really easy to understand and I I hope the public is able to benefit from this as I have. Well, thanks so much for having us and thanks for telling your friends about it. We're a group of volunteers and so our goal is just to share the best information with as many people as we can. So really appreciate the chance to chat with you. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode if you have any questions any burning questions about covid19 feel free to send me a message in anchor anchor.fm slash covid19 ppc is our website and until next time stay well and take good care out there